Are your clients asking about the employee retention credit, R&D tax credits, cost segregation, energy credits or deductions, or the work opportunity credit? Do you lack answers or expertise in your firm to serve these specialty tax incentives? Stay tuned to hear more from our sponsor, TriMerit, later in the episode. How do you get a $100 million market valuation for a company, virtually a shell company, mind you? I mean, it it has one asset, and that asset is a money-losing asset, and its total annual revenue from selling sandwiches isn't even $20,000. How do you do that? Like David Einhorn said, the pastrami must be amazing. Either that or it's fraud. Yeah, it could be fraud. If you'd like to earn CPE credit for listening to this episode, visit earmarkcpe.com. Download the app, take a short quiz, and get your CPE certificate. Continuing education has never been so easy. And now, on to the episode. Hello and welcome to Oh My Fraud, a true crime podcast where our shells are the company kind and not the bullet kind. I'm Greg Kite. And I'm Caleb Newquist. Hey Caleb, before we dive in today's podcast, uh, let's uh, indulge in a quick listener review. Yes, let's indulge. Uh, this one is from CMAGS03, quote, what a great podcast. The humor alongside great reporting and storytelling is the best I've come across. Please keep up the great work. This is prescribed listening for me, and I genuinely enjoy the level of detail, especially around controls. That's awesome. Thanks, CMAGS03. We will definitely keep up the uh, the great work, or at least the mediocre work, however you like to do it, and we will <laughs> be your dancing poodles in the fraud podcast space for as long as we can. A control lover. Very. Yeah. Wasn't ex- didn't Con- see that coming. Control freak. A control say, freak. There you yep. go. Yeah. And um, our therapists, uh, thank you for the positive affirmation for our experience. And we'd like to encourage anyone out there listening to leave us a review uh, on whatever podcast platform you listen to or use um, because, yeah, we'll we'll read them. Yeah. And it helps people find the show. Exactly. So, it's so great. That's a, it's yeah. a, it's a free podcast. So if you feel guilty about that, leave us a review. That's what, Leave us a review. That's what we're after. Go. Okay, so let's get into this, Caleb. Uh, to yeah. to to make a left turn here, real quick. Are are you a foodie? Do you consider yourself to be a foodie? Mm, no, I'm more of an eatie. Okay, I would say. What, I'm an eatie. What do you mean by I that? I like eating. Okay. I mean, I just like eating. Yeah. I mean, I like lots of different kinds of food, and I like like in the spectrum of, I guess. Mm, sophistication is that the word i don't know yeah i think i'm let's just let's just put it this way i'm i'm as comfortable in the outhouse as i am in the penthouse i get that i totally get that because sometimes i like to think of myself as a foodie and then i realize that i'm not i I, i'm probably not really a foodie i'm probably just a glutton with some disposable income is really what it is And, 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 be, but, yeah, but you're, I'm with you're, you. You're like an eater. You're an eater who can like splurge once yeah, in a while. Ex- exactly. A exactly. Lot. Yeah. Do you remember like the most expensive meal that you've ever had? Or, or at least a very expensive meal? Oh, yeah, sure. Um, I mean, you always, if you, I do not go to steakhouses often, but when I do, it always okay. feels like I'm spending lots of money. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Um, I'm trying to think. Uh, oh, you know what? Um, my wife and I uh, went to um, sushi at a very, uh, a very fine sushi restaurant near where we live, and we did the uh, omakase, uh, which is okay. a, a tasting menu. I hope. Okay. I, I hope I'm pronouncing that. I'm, my Japanese is non-existent, so but I think <laughs> okay. that's how it's pronounced. But that's a tape. That's essentially like a I don't know, like an eleven course thing. You, you can do it. Oh, sushi nice! Restaurant. I've done I've yeah. done it a couple of times. Once in Japantown in San Francisco, and then we did it once here. I did that with a friend, and I did another one here um, with uh, with my wife. And those are real fun. You get to try a lot of different things, yeah. a lot of weird things. Uh, yeah. But it's pricey. You pay for it because it's you know it's kind of extravagant and a lot of food. Uh, but it's super. That's super fun. So that's yeah. I highly recommend that for sushi people. Sushi, sushi is one of those uh, foods that you don't want to go cheap on either. Two things, no. two things you don't go cheap on: tattoos and sushi. 
So, uh, so good advice. that's good life advice. Right it it there. really is. Uh, my, the, it, it might not be, no, no, I think it still is the reigning champion for the most expensive meal that I've ever had in my life. But I, I was invited to, uh, by, by Ron Baker to a Verisagen oh, yes. symposium in Napa, California. And part of this, like, it, it's not a conference. It was a little too intimate for a conference. But part one of the mm-hmm. events that they were doing was a was a meal in a wine cave, and it was sure. three three hundred and fifty bucks per person to go okay. to this wine cave. And it's interesting that for both of us, when we talk about our most expensive meals, uh, neither of us uh, mentioned a sandwich that made. <laughs> Uh, our most expensive meal. Likely, I would say, if we said our best meals, I've had some pretty fucking amazing sandwiches, but if I were to <laughs> list my best meals I've had in my life, uh, you know, sandwiches and wouldn't really make it on there. And what makes that interesting is that today we're going to be looking at a deli, a place that sold cheesesteaks and Italian subs, and that deli was somehow valued at over $100 million. So there's this little town of less than 7,000 people. It's called Paulsboro, New Jersey. Uh, It's directly across the Delaware River from Philadelphia. And in Paulsboro... There's just one high school in the town, and the principal of Paulsboro High School, his name's Paul Marina, he was a wrestling legend. Uh, He himself, uh, he won two NCAA Eastern Regional Wrestling Championships when he was a student at James Madison University, which is in Harrisburg, Virginia. And as the head wrestling coach in Paulsboro, He earned 25 state championships with his team in 27 years. The dude was, he was legendary in the, in, in, because there's like big time wrestling. This is like small time wrestling, but he was a, he was a big fucking deal in, right. There's no, there's no championship belts. I believe in no, not, not for high school. Did you, you didn't wrestle. Did you, was that ever a sport that you picked up? no. No, I was a bit too lanky, probably. <laughs> I was I wrestled in seventh and eighth grade uh, in middle school, sure. and then I yeah. I didn't in high school, and I'm glad because it seemed like in high school that's when those guys, the wrestlers just got weird and intense during, re- and well, it's all that it's all that not eating, re- yeah, the, all the spitting in a can to try to make weight. That was mm-hmm. there's something there's something that'll that'll make you a little nuts. Not healthy about that. But so so speaking of Paul Marina, this this wrestling legend, he was, uh, he, he so he was the principal of the school. He was the wrestling coach of the school. But in public education, uh, side hustles are a, a way of life, and I know that from experience. Because like you know, I was a in a past life, I was a middle school math teacher, and every summer there was something that I had to do. So. In 2014, Paul Marina, the principal and coach, he started Your Hometown Deli. It was a nice little modest deli right across the street from Paulsboro High School where he was you know, giving kids detention and making them do uh, burpees. And, uh, and, and I kind of feel, you know, I mean, in none of the research that I get into this detail, but I figure his motivation for starting this deli was one, he could make a little scratch on the side. And you got to think if you open a, if you're the wrestling coach and you open a, a food place right across from your high school, you know that A, wrestlers are going to be your clientele and B, wrestlers are going to be your staff. So he was probably thinking, you know, I'm going to hire a couple of my wrestling uh, guys and, and help them make enough money so they can afford their singlets and their ear guards and their wrestling shoes. So. Uh, what happens though, after that is not too long after he opened this deli, uh, he was approached by, uh, of all people, one of his former ref- wrestlers, this guy named James Patton and James was talking to Paul Marina and saying, Hey, what if we take your hometown deli public, make, make this single, listen, make this single location, oh newly minted, just real basic sandwich shop. Let's take this thing and make it a po- an SEC certified, certified public 
company. company. Let's company. do this because let's shoot for the stars. Why and, not? And, and, and the connection, the funny thing, the connection between James Patton and Paul Marina is James Patton was actually one of Paul Marina's wrestlers at Pearlsboro High School back in the 1970s. But like I said, we're talking 2014 now. These guys are both older fellas. And uh, what Patton was doing at this point is he was a financial analyst for a company called Tyron Capital. And uh, also, fun fact about uh, James Patton is he had already been barred by regulators from acting as a stockbroker and had been not once but repeatedly disciplined for things like allegedly manipulating stock prices and things of that nature. So yeah, this is the guy who came to very salt of the earth, Paul uh, Marina, and said, hey, let's make this deli a public company. And that's exactly what happened. Your hometown deli was acquired as a wholly owned subsidiary of Hometown International Incorporated in mid-2014. And in mid-2015, Hometown International went public with just one small deli as its only asset and its only business. The deli founder slash wrestling coach, Paul Marino, was made president, CEO, CFO, and treasurer of Hometown International and was awarded a shit ton of shares in the company. Yeah. Uh, about 1.5 million shares out of about 8 million shares outstanding, that, to be I precise. think that is... According to regulators, I think that does qualify technically as a, a, one a shit, shit ton. ton. Yeah, that's a of shit shares. Ton. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. So anyway, and this deli went along being a boring, underperforming deli for seven plus years, and apparently, yeah. hometown deli made a good cheesesteak, a good Italian sub. Okay, I love I love a nice. good Italian sub. Sub. I love. A, I, I also like I an Italian beef. Steak. To be honest, I love an Italian beef. Do you myself? Mm-hmm. Hey, big I'm, fan. I'm saying as long as as long as you put enough meat on that Italian sub, I'm going to be a happy guy. Don't don't skip on don't skimp on my cold cuts is what I'm saying. As far as business is concerned, hometown had its best year in 2016 when it earned a whopping seventy six thousand two hundred thirteen dollars in revenue. Wait, not profit. Uh, yeah, twenty. Not 20, profit. Not profit. Revenue. 76,000, not 76 million, not no. 760,000, $76,000 in revenue. Yeah. 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 Okay. The top one. Yeah. The top one. They <laughs> made as much money. The deli made as much money as, you know, uh, a second year associate in, you know, in uh, a second year associate at PwC in, in, in Jersey City. Yeah, yeah, and I and or it's in funny. Philly since Philly since Philly's a little closer, we'll say a PwC associate in Philadelphia. I would think that uh, Paul Marina was probably making about seventy six thousand dollars combined between coaching wrestling and being a principal of a high school. That was probably, probably about the same as his his take home from both of those gigs. Yeah, yeah. Now its worst year was in twenty twenty, when the COVID nineteen pandemic began. And its revenue that year was only $13,976. Yeah. Bar- barely, not even hitting 14 k for, for that year. And I think it, from, from the research I did, it was actually closed for about half of that. Like they, they just did not allow restaurants to operate in New Jersey for about six right. months. So that right. it makes sense, uh, but still not a, uh, not a real thriving business, even when there's not a global pandemic. Even by deli standards. Even by deli standards yeah yeah i know i know i know subways are raking in a whole lot more than than that those those jimmy johns probably yeah those are tightly run ships exactly all right so hometown never turned a profit in fact every year it posted huge losses why a lot of it was because revenue was not good but the biggest right. factor is because it was a public company. <laughs> right. It costs right. a lot, right? Yeah, to be to keep a pump. If it, it, it costs a lot to become a public company, yeah. But then it costs a lot also to stay a public company. Exactly. Okay? Which is the, why this is so weird that it's like, hey, not only is this a a brand new deli, but it's it's untested, and we and also you got to go. Delis aren't really gonna. They're not gonna go to the moon. Is like no. like best case scenario over a decade or two, you will start franchising and end up making. Yeah. A, but it's not. It's not gonna be. It's not a rocket ship. You're not. You're not jumping on the next. Uh, you know, flight to to Mars. No, I mean, 
I mean, let's be honest here. We're talking about meat and cheese and bread. Yeah. And some decent pickles and you got a business. Yep. And, but yeah, it's not a, it's not a big business. Yeah. It's not huge, not huge profits. Nobody's right. spending 350 bucks a head for your, for your cheesesteak. Right. So let's, to give it some context, the average amount that an SEC registrant pays for an audit and to pay for an audit, right? Cause they have to have them. Yeah. In 2016 was over $1.9 million. That, yeah. The av- that's the average price. Average. Yeah. And that went up to over 2.1 million in 2020. <laughs> Hometown's <laughs> audit costs were about 20,000 in 2019 and 2020, right. which wiped out all of their revenue <laughs> for both of those years. <laughs> right. Yeah, cuz cuz 2020 the revenue was was not even 14,000 and I remember looking at the 2019 and it the, the two years combined and they they said this over and over again in the in the different articles about this case is that in those yeah. two years it, they didn't even make 40,000 bucks. So yeah, right. literally all of their revenue for those two years was just taken out in just the audits. Yeah. And and they have to buy things other than an audit, right? <laughs> right. They they have to have they have to have bread. Yeah. And they have to have pepperoncinis. Yes. <laughs> and, and and probably mayonnaise. the little paper cups for the for the diet Pepsi. Right. Yeah, cuz wrestlers aren't drinking they're not drinking the sugar sodas. They're drinking no. the diet. And and if you're having wrestlers, you probably they probably want the mustard because they, they're watching the calories. They, they do. They do. And they're probably wasting napkins. So yeah, they they were tanking on their on their finan- and and actually the financials that I looked at uh, it was the 2020 financials so it had a look back to 2019 as well mm-hmm. and in 2020 they lost over six hundred thousand dollars according to their uh, their income statement and in 2019 the year before they lost about one hundred fifty thousand dollars on their on their P and L so just in those two years this this, this shop who's again. To keep it in perspective, the best year was was like seventy something thousand dollars, seventy six thousand dollars. Yeah. And in twenty twenty, they lost not ten times that, but pretty damn close to ten times right. that in in a year. So they're they're not they're not doing great. <laughs> not doing great. <laughs> they're losing hundreds of thousands of dollars every year. Revenue is going down, not up. Right. Which is wrong direction. Usually the opposite of what you yeah. want. That's what you want. There's no sign of them trying to expand because how could you? Right. And yet the principals and shareholders continue to throw money down the hometown deli toilet because that's good business. This episode of Oh My Fraud is sponsored by Trimerit. It seems like every week a new questionable ERC mill pops up offering small businesses a way to get $26,000 from the government for each one of their employees. We've all seen Twitter ads, Facebook ads, ads in podcasts, ads on Instagram, ads on TV shows, and I even personally know a guy here in Utah who's been charged with fraud for false ERC claims totaling $11 million. These questionable ERC mills are coming hard after your clients. If they haven't reached them already, they will soon. And based on the stories I've been hearing from accountants, the IRS will be reaching out to them soon too. This is why when it comes to ERC, it's important to have the right people, the right process, and the right partner. Introducing TriMerit. TriMerit is a team of CPAs, engineers, and attorneys that function as an extension of your tax advisory team. They can help your clients with ERC, R&D tax credits, cost segregation, energy credits or deductions, and the work opportunity credit. And working with them is as easy as one, two, three. One, they offer a no-cost feasibility analysis. Two, they document all tax incentive studies to ensure that your clients meet all requirements. And three, they offer audit representation to ensure your clients aren't left hanging if audited by the IRS. To learn more about adding TriMerit to your team, head over to ohmyfraud.promo slash TriMerit. That's ohmyfraud.promo forward slash T-R-I-M-E-R-I-T. And then comes April 15th, 2021. 
and we all know on April 15th, everybody should be distracted with tax day. And in 2021, everyone should have been distracted by Lil Nas X's hit song, um, Call Me By Your Name, uh, as you remember that song from April 2021, right, Caleb? Yep. Yep. And instead of those two things, the media gets all sorts of crazy about guess who? Hometown Deli. Oh. And the re- uh, yeah, and the reason why Hometown Deli, the sleepy little delicatessen in Paulsboro, New Jersey, the reason why that became the big story of the day is because on that day, hedge fund billionaire David Einhorn dropped his newsletter, and in his newsletter, he pointed out the weirdness that was Hometown Deli International, as you remember, the parent company of Hometown Deli. This is what David Einhorn says in his newsletter, he says, someone pointed us to Hometown International, which owns a single deli in rural New Jersey. The deli had $21,772 in sales in 2019 and only $13,976 in 2020. Hometown International reached a market cap of $113 million on February 8th, 2021. The pastrami must be amazing. Regulators who are supposed to be protecting investors appear to neither be present nor curious. A scathing indictment of regulators and a pointed uh, concern of just... Because, Caleb, this was, this was back around when um, ro- there was the whole Robin Hood and GameStop weirdness, sure. the meme stocks. Sure. And yeah. So this was so this is after that, and this is kind of what he was pointing out. He's like going, "What the hell is going on with our capital <laughs> markets? Because yep. they're doing weird things like valuing a deli at 113 million dollars, and a you, single you deli, did, a single deli, and, a single deli. And you you were I asked you to look at some other companies that had similar market capitalizations yes and the one the one that you brought up that i thought was the best example was bed bath and beyond yeah yeah so uh bed bath do you have a bed bath just out of curiosity yes is there a bed bath and beyond in your community can you drive to one from your house i mean of course yeah i mean it's i mean of course i can drive to one yeah but i mean the closest one is um it's a few miles. I would say like mm, 10 minutes. Okay. Yeah. You're not walking there, but, but if you know, definitely not, walking if you there. need, you know, if you need some household gadgets or, or if you, or more likely if you're going to someone's wedding and they registered there, you can get there to buy them something from their registry. I certainly can. And it's the same with me. There's one, it's not 10 miles away. It's maybe, you know, two or three miles away. So it's, yeah. Every, every, and that's, that's the point. Everybody's got a bed, bath and beyond that's near them. Here's yeah. another, I did a little research. Um, oh. quick, just, just try to guess how many locations do you think bed, bath and beyond has? Uh, well, I know they've been falling on hard times lately. They have been. That's uh, true. So I, I, I think the number is dwindling. Yeah. Is I'll it say, more than, is it more than one? That's really what I'm getting at, Caleb. Oh, yes. Yeah. I, I do believe there's more than one. I think we just, I think we just stated that there's at least two. There's one near Denver, Colorado, and there's yes. one near Orem, Utah. Yes, so yes. there's more than one. And what I, what I saw was earlier this year, there were 691 uh, Bed Bath & Beyond locations. Mm-hmm. And if you look at their annual revenue per location, they're actually pulling in around $9 million in revenue per location every year. Oh. But as you said, they aren't in the best shape, but their market capitalization with 691 locations, $9 million in revenue each store, they have a $55 million uh, market capitalization for Bed Bath & Beyond. I can't... Think that's pretty. That's pretty small. That's pre- that's that's like half. That's 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 <laughs> half of what hometown international's market cap was. Yeah, which is bizarre. And even if you made the case that oh, their market capitalization should be low because they're on hard times, they're mm-hmm. they're at least like making a decent amount. <laughs> like the 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 dollars per store alone is like if anything, you gotta you gotta wonder if uh, Bed Bath and Beyond is undervalued at $55 million. Hold on, hold on. This is Caleb from the future jumping in. 
I can hear some of your brains breaking. You're thinking, wait, Greg, Bed Bath & Beyond went bankrupt. And you're absolutely right. While my good friend Greg was trying to make a point about the potential value of Bed Bath & Beyond, reality had other plans. On April 23rd, 2023, Bed Bath & Beyond filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. All of their stores, as well as all the locations of its subsidiary, Bye Bye Baby, will be closed by June 30th, 2023. Okay? All right. Back to the episode. So, Greg, uh, since we've mentioned it a few times, I think it's worthwhile to explain to the audience, for those that don't know, what market capitalization is. Yeah. And how it kind of... Because like you pointed out earlier, there's 691 Bed Bath & Beyond stores, and they all have revenue of $9 million. Right. So let's make it easy and round it up to $10 million. That means that shouldn't this company... It, it makes... Billions almost seven hundred million dollars. Yeah, is that is that right? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So shouldn't that shouldn't that make it worth more than fifty five million? That doesn't make any sense, right? Right, right. So market capitalization. Keep me honest here because yep. I've been known to make mistakes. But market capitalization is the number of outstanding common shares for a company. Yes. For a public company. Yes. Multiplied by its current stock price. Yes. By its most okay. recent stock price. Yeah. Like clo close of business, yep. right? That's it. Okay. And it so it, of course it because stocks are traded traded throughout the day, mm -hmm. the market cap will fluctuate throughout the day. Right. But at the end of day, you can say, oh, you know, and it, and since it changes, you know, every day, it's it's you know, it's very fluid. But yeah. It's a moving. In general, it's a moving as target. of this recording, as of this recording, the number of Bed Bath and Beyond shares times its market price yep. equaled fifty-five million dollars. There you go. That's exactly right, and and that is accurate, and that's really what you know for for laymen like us who aren't you know we're not professors of finance. So that's certainly that, not. That's really a good enough example. But but our uh, you know friend of the show Matt Levine. He 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 actually full said disclosure. He's a, not really a friend of the show, but oh, he's a friend. He's a friend of the show now. He uh, oh, is he? Oh, great. <laughs> I think so. Okay, he's a friend sure. Of, he made a he's case. A very good writer. He is, and he made a case uh, that you that all of it's not just all the outstanding shares, but it's, yes. it would be the fully like if if everyone's options and warrants and things like that were executed, that yep. you have to include that in the number of shares that you multiply by the most recent sales price so right which is very interesting because when he did that calculation he says hometown deli was worth more like two billion dollars if you look right. at it like that but everybody was saying 100 100 million because like you, the the calculation that you said that's really more the the quick and dirty and i'd say arguably more accurate calculation as well right. so yeah a little because yes. again if everybody if all of a sudden the market was diluted by you know, 20 times or something like that. If every, if all the, if all the possible shares were out there, that, that would, I'm sure based on the laws of supply and demand that would drop your share price pretty quick. Yes. Yeah. Like a rock. Yeah, exactly. Uh -huh. So, so, okay. Uh, that was, that was fun. That was super enjoyable. So you'd think that the media attention that Einhorn brought to hometown would burst its bubble. The stock yeah. price would tank. Yeah. And everything would go back to normal. Right? Yeah. No. <laughs> the day after Einhorn's letter, people were buying a shit ton of hometown stock. The average daily uh, trading before his letter was about 350 shares per day. Uh, okay. Actually here, exactly 353 if, uh, if Greg's Kite's research is to be believed. And oh, it's, it's my research is dead on with that one. Impeccable. So the day after David Einhorn's newsletter, over 42,000 shares traded. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, is crazy, but also wonderful. And the day after that was just under 15,000. Right. And and so some of the so, explanations... And, so, can, can I just stop you? Yeah. You were a, you were a middle grade math teacher. Yeah. Middle, oh. middle middle school math teacher. Yes. Right? Yeah. I think that meets the definition of exponential growth, right? Oh, yeah. That definitely <laughs> would. Yeah, definitely would. Not <laughs> Well, and and it's even it's just bizarre growth is what it is. Yeah. Um, right. 
and, and and even that, like people were trying to wrap their brains about why in the hell that happened. But yep. it was, but it, but again, remember this is right on the heels of the whole GameStop thing. Right. So as weird as it is, a lot of the explanation for why it blew up was that there was just people who thought it'd be cool and funny to <laughs> yeah. buy a couple of to shares own of this shares in that yeah. deli. Yeah. yeah, and so if you've got enough people, like I'm gonna just throw, you know, because they were trading it like you know what was well yeah what were the what was the share price yeah for these guys so what's also weird because this is a pretty weird story Uh, yeah (laughs) it's also weird is despite the huge uptick in trading volume the price of the shares actually went down a little bit yeah uh, which like you mentioned it earlier kind of seems to violate the law of supply and demand. Yeah. The pre-Einhorn price was $13.50 per share. Two days and 57,000 trades later, the price was $12.99. About a 4% dip. But Hometown was still a $100 million company. Yeah. And, and And that's the thing. So if each share, if we're just talking... You know, twelve, yeah, thirteen bucks a share. Yeah, I could see people who were just uh, market enthusiasts going, "Hey, I'll, I'll, I'll throw a hundred and thirty bucks at that and buy ten sure. shares, ten shares, just to just to say I did it." Yeah, I got um, some hometown deli. Yeah, in portfolio, and there there might even been well, I don't know, I don't believe this that because people get people get excited about a hot stock that's higher than it's supposed to be because they sure. assume it's going to keep going higher, which is the complete opposite of what they should think. So there was, mm-hmm. there was some, there was some chitter chatter about how that might've been part of it, but whoever's buying because they think it's a hot stock, even though it's only on anybody's radar because David Einhorn said it's a bullshit stock <laughs> is yeah. just a idiot and deserves to lose all the money that they put into it. So it's it's just it, it's maybe the whole idea that no no press is bad press is right. what that tries to you know drive home This episode of Oh My Fraud is sponsored by LiveFlow. Did you hear the news? LiveFlow just launched a new consolidation product. LiveFlow power user Beth Melcher of MoneyFit said that LiveFlow's consolidation is saving her team 15 to 20 minutes per client every week and eliminates the use of formulas. LiveFlow's automated multi-entity consolidation is simple to use. You can easily map multiple unmatching charts of accounts from multiple QuickBooks online companies into one standardized report. And once it's set up, LiveFlow works its magic, updating the consolidations automatically in real time, so you can focus on analysis using instantly updated data across entities. LiveFlow can even consolidate financials that are in different currencies, and the possibilities don't stop there. LiveFlow empowers you with flexible, powerful reporting tools to create customized dashboards that meet your specific needs. Build executive presentations, cash flow forecasts, and more with just a few clicks. Stop grueling over manual consolidation reports, and to get 25% off your first three months, be one of the first 10 listeners to head over to ohmyfraud.promo slash LiveFlow. That's ohmyfraud.promo forward slash L-I-V-E-F-L-O-W. So with all this happening, everybody just wanted to know what the hell is going on with this goddamn company. <laughs> and and the, fir- the first, one of the things that you need to know is you need to know that hometown stock is called an over-the-counter or an OTC stock, which basically means, and again, this is dumbed down for me because I'm not the brightest guy, but it basically means it's a publicly traded stock, but it's not listed on an exchange. Is that that's your understanding of OTC, right? Yes. Uh, right, Caleb? Yeah. Yep. And so so it's not so basically you have you have private listings and private buying. It's not you know, it's not New York Stock Exchange. It's not NASDAQ. It's just people who have them for sale and other people who are like, I'll, I'll buy some of that. Uh, second thing you need to know is that the vast majority of all of the stock that was, uh, that was out for Hometown International was owned by a small group of people. 
And the third thing you need to remember is what we just said about how market cap is calculated. It's just the last sale price by the total number of outstanding shares. Mm -hmm. So if you take all that together and you're a thoughtful person, it'll come to mind pretty quickly that there's a huge risk of market manipulation with these over-the-counter stocks. Wait a Be minute. Yeah. It's why, why, wait, why would you conclude that there's market ma manipulation? Well, I, I'm not, well, <laughs> I would conclude there's market manipulation because everybody's going, why the hell is this one deli company worth a hundred million dollars? That's why I would conclude that. On paper, that looks very strange. It yeah. looks very strange. But then it also makes sense with these OTC stocks that it'd be easy to get there because, and, and let's, t let's take this example. Let's say that you have two institutional investors who both own sh shares of an over-the-counter stock. And uh, if by, sorry, just to make sure everyone understands, by an institutional investor, you mean like somebody big, like a mutual fund or like a state pension fund or something like that? Well, well, I'm even talking more pedestrian than that, where it's more like there's just a company whose sole purpose is to purchase, to invest in stocks. You like just a hedge have, fund. It's like a, a, hedge fund? a company as, yeah, a, a hedge fund would be an example of that, but you okay. could just have somebody who set up an LLC that's just like they're trading and, uh, you know, oh, uh, you know, oh, so real, market okay. speculation LLC. Okay, got that, it. The, yeah, the, but, but, but the things you said, like a, like a pension company or a hedge fund, that's also, that would also be an institutional investor. But let's keep it, let's make it a little, bit, uh, a little bit more, yeah, like I said, pedestrian than that. Let's just say it's a couple LLCs that were set up just to do speculation in stocks. Okay. And so they're two separate entities, but let's say those two separate entities have the same person who is in charge of the operations of those two different entities. Very easy to do. And if those two entities both own shares in the same OTC stock, they can sell the stock back and forth to each other for whatever price they want to sell the stock for. And then all of a sudden, if that's the last price that was given for a share of the stock, then that all of a sudden is the lever for your market capitalization. So if you if if you want to double the market cap for that company, you just sell from one of your companies to the other company twice of what it last sold for, you could sell one share for that and that mm -hmm. would double your market capitalization. Now, people are usually going to be a little bit more like sneaky about it. <laughs> maybe maybe slowly yeah. build it up rather than say, "Here, I'm going to buy one share for a million dollars and now it's a you know, bazillion dollar market cap company. But also, weirdly enough, that's what some people have done with some crypto cryptocurrencies that they've just yes. made and thought it'd be funny to say it's worth, you know, four quadrillion dollars. So they do the they do the hocus pocus and all of a sudden they've got they can say that a cryptocurrency is worth a gazillion dollars, even though no one owns it except one guy and his brother. Yeah. So so Caleb. Yes. Talking about these two fictional institutional investors with the same uh, guy who's able to to call the shots at both those companies. Bottom line, that's actually what was happening with with hometown. There was oh. there was that exact kind of thing going on. Now, in case you didn't know, market manipulation is totally illegal. But what makes hometown even weirder is that typically market manipulation is part of a pump and dump scheme where you pump up the price, then you get the word out about how hot this stock is, uh, and hometown share price was up 939%. And then after you go, hey, this thing's going to the moon, it's, up, it's already up 939%. Get on this train before it leaves the station. And then everybody clamors to, to get your shares. You sell all of it to all these super stoked investors, and you make lots of money, and then you don't really give a shit after that what happens to the stock because you just rang the cash register and got your money and got the hell out of Dodge. However, in the case of hometown, there was all the pumping, but none of the dumping. And in fact, it, it's weird. One of the weird things, one of the many weird things about this hometown case is that there was, there was zero attempt to even publicize the stock or the price of the stock or the growth of the price of the stock. The other thing that people speculated was going on with Hometown is that its entire reason for existing was to become a vehicle for a reverse merger. 
Back in episode seven, when we interviewed Francie McKenna, we talked about SPACs. Those are special purpose acquisition companies. I remember this because I remember you and her talking about SPACs and me interjecting and said, hey, uh, so what's a SPAC? SPAC? She was very gracious with you, So gracious. She should have just said, (laughs) she should have just left the podcast, but she instead uh, explained to me what they are. Yeah. And a reverse merger is a shadier version of a SPAC. And SPACs aren't exactly squeaky clean, but. Right, right. That's like saying filters cigarettes are a healthier version <laughs> of, a, of a cigarette. Well said. Yeah. Well said. In both cases, there's a shell company that's a public company, okay? Yeah. Some other company comes along that wants to be a public company, but it wants to do it fast or cheap or both and without too much scrutiny, okay? So the second company acquires the shares of the shell company and then that shell company buys the company that wants to be public and boom, the not public company is suddenly a public company. Cool? Yeah, that makes sense because it's basically you're gonna do a hostile takeover the shell company And then once you're in control of the shell company that doesn't really have anything, you say, I know what we're going to do. We're going to acquire that company over there, which is really the company that we are already in. And then you do a merger and then all of a sudden your private company is a public company. Makes sense to me. Cool. Now, SPACs at least have certain safeguards, procedures, rules that must be followed. Uh, reverse mergers, on the other hand, do not. <laughs> reverse mergers are not explicitly illegal, but it's it, they should be seen as kind of a red flag. Yeah, it's like if your Tinder date rolls up in a nice car and then takes you to an expensive dinner, but then during that dinner you find out he lives with his mom. That's kind of like that's more or less it. It doesn't mean that yeah. he's a loser or or a serial killer, but. If and when he does turn out to be a loser or a serial killer, everybody, including you, uh, will say that they always knew it. Right. It was obvious. Yeah, it was obvious. <laughs> it was obvious. We knew it the whole time. Knew it the um, whole time. And just, just quickly to note, we, uh, our explanations of reverse mergers and SPACs are very superficial. There's a lot more to learn about it. We put a link in the show notes. So if you want to get a better understanding of reverse mergers and SPACs, just check out the show notes and, and research to your heart's content. This episode of Oh My Fraud is sponsored by the South Carolina Association of CPAs, also known as SCA CPA. Hey, Caleb, you know I love diving into a juicy fraud case with you, right? But check this out. There's a place where accountants get together and talk shop and share knowledge about everything accounting related, including stories about untamed financials. Oh, tell me more, Greg. At every single one of my state CPA society events, there's a mountain of practical insights and experience. You get to meet other accountants, share knowledge, and even hear some firsthand accounts of financial intrigue. And here's the kicker, Caleb. You'd be hard-pressed to find a better place for networking. I joined my state society as an undergrad during the depths of the Great Recession, and before I graduated, I had multiple job offers, all from firms that I connected with through my state society. Hey, that all sounds pretty good, Greg, but what else does a state CPA society bring to the table? Uh, They bring lifelong professional friendships, networking that'll turbocharge your career, and leadership opportunities. And on top of all that, your state CPA society is an unwavering advocate for you and for the profession. State CPA associations keep their fingers on the pulse of the constantly shifting business, regulatory, and legislative landscapes to keep you on the cutting edge and to protect the CPA profession. And as you know, protecting the profession means securing your livelihood. And hey, wherever you're tuning into the podcast from, be it the Palmetto State or some other state with a lamer nickname, there's a CPA association in your corner ready to ignite your accounting journey. If you're ready to find out why CPA Association membership is for you, head on over to ohmyfraud.promo slash SCACPA. That's ohmyfraud.promo forward slash SCACPA. 
So in his April 2021 newsletter, David Einhorn said, quote, regulators who were supposed to be protecting investors appeared to be neither present nor curious. I, rem- I remember from <laughs> earlier in the show. Yes. When, when you read that. And it turns out that one of the best ways to make regulators both present and curious Uh is to very loudly, very publicly, and very specifically accuse them of not being present and curious. And boom, all of a sudden, they just show up out of nowhere. And this this media frenzy that David Einhorn sparked uh, pretty much forced the SEC to, to look pretty closely into what was going on at Hometown International. As it turns out, there's three people uh, who are key players in this whole situation. The first one is James Patton. We talked about him before. He's the former Paulsboro High School wrestler. The second guy was Peter Coker Sr. And the third guy was Peter Coker Jr. All three of these guys were associated through uh, James Patton's employer, Tryon Capital. And hey, yeah. Wait, didn't you say Tyron earlier? Or early in the podcast? Yeah. No, I said Tryon. Tryon, like try on a pair of pants? Yeah. Like Are you like, sure? Yeah. I'm pretty sure you said Tyron. Like, uh no, I, no, I go back and listen to it again. You'll see. It was try on the whole time. All right. Like try on a hearing aid so you can hear what I said when I said it. Anyways, these three guys. Patton, Coker, and Coker transferred millions of hometown international shares to these nominee entities, which basically, like we were talking about before, these is companies that were just there to speculate in stock exchanges, and uh, and and they were uh, they transferred all these sh- millions of shares to mask their control over the shares, so that they could then indulge themselves in the pumping of the value of the stock. But they went beyond that, too. They also transferred shares to family, to friends, and to associates. And then after transferring those shares, these three guys gained control over those people's trading accounts by obtaining their login information. So they still basically had control over all those shares that they transferred. But that also continued to obfuscate the fact that they did, in fact, control those shares. And then... They engaged in wash sales and uh, the the pumping of the stock price, as we mentioned before. Now, we should say at some point, right, that these are allegations. As of this recording, these are only allegations. It is. uh, These are alleged. Nobody's been sent to jail yet. But this is what this is what things appear to to be to the powers that be. Okay. Yes. Got it. But like we said before, there was just the the inflation of the stock price, but not the dumping of the stock onto the unsuspecting masses. Because mm. it's also, and, and this is the thing, and we'll get to this even later. It's still super confusing what the hell these guys were really trying to do. But it seems as though their ultimate intention was rather than dump the shares to execute a reverse merger because mm-hmm. apparently if you're doing a reverse merger with a hundred million dollar company, it's way cooler or way, or, or it feels more legit to the company that's trying to do this. Not so legit thing to, to do a reverse merger with a hundred million dollar company and not with a $50,000 company. So that's, that's part of the, uh, at least the, as people are trying to decode what happened and try to back into some meaning of this, that's, that's pretty much what they're figuring these guys were trying to do is to execute one of these reverse merger. Uh, and the other thing is there was also an intercepted text message uh, sent by Peter Coker Jr. that said that once the reverse merger was announced, that the price of hometown stock should get another ump- upward bump. And then at that point, they could sell the shares for even more of a profit. Uh, that's what he said. But we the, don't really see the the dump in the pump and dump. Perhaps, that that yes. would be the dump. But that's the thing. Yep. In, af, but the, the dump never happened. Right. Nobody ever took a dump. Mm. And that's what. That, and so we got these three guys 
and and they actually never any of them made money on home hometown stock sales or on the reverse merger they didn't if you just look at what they they had they didn't make any any and the, and there was actually a reverse merger that did happen it happened on April 1st 2022 with a company called uh, Macamer Holdings Incorporated which was a startup company and as a startup it had zero revenue which if you're keeping track zero revenue is less than the deli yes a lot less but it's still less than the deli the only way that there was any money made by these three knuckleheads was uh in consulting fees so uh the so hometown international paid the cokers a little over five hundred thousand dollars in consulting fees apart from that Nobody made much money. And if you think about $500,000 over the course of seven years, you're talking, you know, 70,000 ish dollars per year, not a huge haul for the Cokers, even at that. And what's awesome is that this whole hometown situation got a lot and so much, a ridiculous amount of intention. And then it just kind of died and people are still unsure if it fizzled out because because of all the attention and scrutiny that resulted from Einhorn's newsletter, or if it fizzled out just because Pat and Coker and Coker were bad at doing crime. Regardless of their ineptitude, Patton and the father-son Cokers have all been indicted. They were charged with securities fraud, conspiracy, wire fraud, money laundering, and securities manipulation. The Securities and Exchange Commission also filed civil charges against them. James Patton and Peter Coker Sr. were both from North Carolina, but Peter Coker Jr. was living in Hong Kong when everything went down. Patton and Coker Sr. were arrested right away, but Coker Jr. disappeared. He turned up three months later when he was found and arrested in Phuket, Thailand, where he voluntarily agreed to be extradited to the U.S., And as of this recording, he's still in a Bangkok jail awaiting extradition. The wrestling coach, by the way, got off scot-free. And despite its great cheesesteaks and a colorful backstory, they closed the deli in June 2022. (laughs) So, Greg, did we learn anything? I'm not sure. (laughs) Uh, well, yeah, and I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Either. I love this story. I do too. I love the story, but I'm not sure what I learned. Listen, I uh, yeah, I I've realized that I love all food related fraud stories that we've done, food <laughs> yeah. or beverage related. I love this yeah. one. I love the fruitcake fraud. I love the Pappy Van Winkle <laughs> uh, bourbon Pappy. fraud. Yeah. I love yeah. all of them. If you put if you put food or booze in a fraud case, I, I'm in with both feet. And I also like it. When the fraudsters are at least arguably incompetent, and I, and, and I'll still, <laughs> yeah. I'll still say that I, I think these guys were incompetent at what they were doing because all of the maneuvers that they were doing throughout this entire story, the the Cokers and and Patton, everything they were trying to do was clearly to make money on the price of these stocks, and as yeah. as you said. As was stated earlier, the only money that was made was the five hundred something thousand dollars in in consultation fees, which yeah. which again, you look at that, you divide it three ways, you divide it over seven years, it's it's like chump change really for yeah. anybody in finance. So it was kind of a nothing. They 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 missed the mark and and again, I think they had something there where they if you're gonna go to jail, at least go to jail for doing they're these guys are all in huge trouble and they didn't even really do the fraud that they were going to do and that makes me that makes my heart feel good that they fell far short of yes our at least our expectations right it's like it's like they were you know you're in jail and it's like what are you in for uh fraud how about you attempted fraud and it just doesn't (laughs) it doesn't give you the cred in the yard i'm assuming i'm projecting but i think that that's probably the case but caleb here's in in terms of learning the place that my brain goes with this story and and of course this is because my whole world is the cpa accounting world so my brain goes to the cpa firm 
that audited Hometown's books. And I looked into it. The firm is called Liggett and Webb. They're a CPA firm. They've got offices in New York and Florida. The Florida branch was the ones that audited uh, Hometown's books. And okay. and a little backstory on Liggett and Webb is these guys were censured and fined by this PCAOB in August of 2020. So if you got your timeline right, that was before Einhorn's letter about uh, Hometown. So their censure was not related to this engagement. But regardless, they were censured, uh, which is interesting, but also maybe it's not because Caleb, I don't know if you have the same impression, but it seems like every firm that audits public (laughs) company gets censured and fined at some point by the PCOB. It seems like it'd be hard to find a firm that hasn't been in trouble, that that audits public companies that hasn't been in trouble. I I think you'd be hard pressed to find a firm with a spotless record. From the PCAOB. Yes. Yeah, because yes. there's just there's a naughty list that goes on forever with yep. those guys. Um, so maybe that was just good. It's, it's making a lot out of a little because it looks good that they got in trouble by a regulator when everybody's getting in trouble with the regulator. Yeah. Um, yeah. But also, I think this isn't nothing, but one of their partners, James Liggett, who you've got to assume is one of the founding partners of this, was barred from being associated with any registered public accounting firm but again his the the discipline against him was not for the hometown situation and despite his name being Liggett it's also still unclear if he was part of the hometown international engagement so all this to say and 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 we see this with everybody like I talked about with Patton he had you know he 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 was barred from being a stockbroker the yep. the company that's doing their books is you know is being uh, censured and fined and and one of their founding partners is you know was was uh, disciplined by I assume the state board of of CPAs. Uh, even if you look deeper, like the the law form the the law firm that helped these guys go public initially, they got in trouble for some other IPO shenanigans that they were involved mm-hmm. in. So there's just this this web of of people with checkered backgrounds being involved with hometown but all that being said here's here's my dilemma and the dilemma is mm-hmm. this did Liggett and Webb did they do something wrong because all of this feels like an Arthur Anderson kind of deja vu thing where Liggett and Webb because never in any of my research did anyone say that they did anything wrong but also they were front row to what was happening and they didn't they didn't do anything about it is that is that okay or is that not okay like like for instance do you when you look at this case and you think about Liggett and Webb as a CPA firm should they have even stayed on the engagement with hometown or should they have fired them as a client what what do you think about that i mean <laughs> we know we all know that like audit firms aren't they're not. They're not known for taking stands against clients. <laughs> so, yeah, that's that, like, well. And you're right. They're they're definitely not known for that. But I think that that doesn't change the question because the question is, should they have? I mean, look, you have a you have a public company <laughs> that consists of a single deli with almost no revenue. Yeah. And it's it has a value. It has a market capitalization of a hundred million dollars. Like, there's some. Any auditor can take a look at that on paper and be like, "What's going on here? This is fishy. This is, this is fishy. This this is it doesn't make any sense. Re- it's, it's red flags. Weird. It's it's just it's just weird. full of red flags. And yeah. so yeah, I don't I don't know if they should have fired the client. I don't know if they should have rang up the SEC before David Einhorn made a spectacle of everyone, but um, you know, <laughs> it's pretty weird. It's pretty weird when you just look at the circumstances and you understand what auditors have to do is they have to get an understanding of the business. Yeah. Then it it doesn't look good. Yeah. And I guess where my brain goes to is. 
Like, should they have, I get, and I, I classify that as more of like, should I be giving more to charity? Like, <laughs> and, and it's like, yeah, sure. I should. And, and, but Probably. am I obligated to? I'm, I'm not, but should I? Yeah. If I, in a perfect world, I'd be given a lot more to charity than I am right now. And I'd say in a perfect world, I say, hell yeah. Liggett and Webb should have fired him. They should have called the SEC and said, hey, this is weird. Please look into these clients of mine because they're following the rules with in terms of accounting procedures. But by seeing all this, there's something weird going on in this company. They should have done that. Now, I also can easily default back to being super rule follower kind of person and go, but mm -hmm. did they follow all the rules? Did they have all the proper disclosures? And clearly they did because like I said, there was zero implication in any of the research that Liggett and Webb didn't do a top notch job with right. these financial statements. Like the sec filings were, I just remember reading in uh, one of the Levine newsletters was like, these are, the SEC filings were fine, clean. Yeah, yeah. Right? So, which, which is is also part of the whole SPAC reverse merger uh, right. racket, is that if your SEC filings, if all that stuff isn't pristine, you're not a good candidate for a right. reverse merger or for a SPAC. Right. So right. you gotta have those. So, was the quality of the financials good? I think unquestionably so. But but then that goes back to the whole Arthur Anderson thing, which I guess played out in the in a similar way. Because Arthur Anderson, they were they went out of business, but not because they were disciplined by regulatory companies, but just because they got such bad reputation by being involved with Enron. So mm. same kind of thing here, where these guys didn't they they got no slap on the wrist or anything like that, even though they were front row to some bad goings on. I guess that's kind of like if you. If you're doing the taxes for the mafia, do you have to do you have to call the cops on them? I don't. Not if you want to keep your oh, kneecaps. I no, guess. No, not if you want to. Yeah. the The only stay thing above ground. The only thing to me, looking through the K ones for or the, the K ones, the 10 Ks for mm -hmm. uh, hometown international, is I did notice that they did not that Liggett and Webb did not include a going concern disclosure in their auditor's report. And to me, if you're losing $600,000 on a company whose revenue is $76,000, mm -hmm. you should be putting a going concern disclosure yeah. in the auditor's report. That's the only thing that I saw that seemed to be missing from their financial statements. Sure. Yeah. Sure. I mean, that yep. would have probably got some, that would have probably maybe drawn a little more attention, but maybe, maybe not like, you know, there's plenty of there's plenty of businesses that get going concern that have going concern warnings. I and mean, I don't mean plenty, but it's not it does happen. And people are just like, All right. Like And I guess the only other thing I learned on this one is that it it's weird how so blatantly obvious of a of some sort of weirdness and shenanigans where it's just right in your face and in our capital markets people if it's not hurting anybody nobody's going to do anything about it right. because again i think if einhorn didn't didn't blow the whistle on these guys through his newsletter i it would have been very interesting to see what happened with them and likely they would have executed i, I think i assume tell me if you if you don't agree with me i think they probably would have done the reverse merger made the money the way that they thought they were going to and would have gone on their merry way what what do you think yeah, what does your I crystal mean, ball tell you i i don't know like i i think Again, I think one of the things I read was that because they were over the counter, that meant they were not, they couldn't be traded on Robinhood, for example. Right. So retail, very little exposure to retail investors. Right. So that was, that was the case, like in the, in the meme stock frenzy of this time period, which yeah. really wasn't that long ago, that was the big deal that people were like clutching their pearls about was that retail retail investors were the ones that were going to get hurt. And right. they certainly, they certainly did. Yeah. In this case, because it was a thinly traded stock, it wasn't eligible to be on Robin hood. And for example, and so like, who's the victim here? 
Yeah. But it's yeah. like, like if you were going right. to make a defense, for, if you were going to make a defense of these guys and someone right. certainly is defending these guys. Yeah. It's like, who's, the, who's the real victim here? Right. Is it a victimless crime? Or yeah. is, it, or, is this, yeah, that's the question. Right. That's uh, exactly. Well, and it, that's, it does. But to Einhorn's point, it's like, we have we have regulators that are kind of asleep at the wheel exactly and we have financial engineering going on that is maybe not in the spirit of <laughs> good good finance you know yeah yep exactly and so i yeah, and and yeah that that it's it's just it's the weirdness of it that caught people's attention they're like hey maybe we should look into this I'm like oh yeah this, this is what's going on well and to even wrap it into the francine mckenna episode one more time is this is the golden age of fraud because Indeed. regulators are not present and not concerned yeah all right well that's it for this episode remember if you order a pastrami sandwich make sure that it costs less than a hundred million dollars <laughs> And also remember, a reverse merger is a financial transaction, not a sexual position. If you want to drop us a line, uh, you send us an email at ohmyfraud at earmarkcpe.com. And Caleb, where can people find you out there in the internet? On Twitter at cnewquist and LinkedIn backslash Caleb Newquist. Greg, are you on the internet? I, I am. Uh, one thing you could do to find me is just Google Greg Kite with the last name spelled properly K-Y-T-E and it'll show you all of me and maybe a couple of things of like a firefighter in uh, Georgia. But other oh. than that, it's it's all me. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Greg Kite and LinkedIn backslash Greg Kite. Oh, my fraud is written by Greg Kite and myself. Our producer is Zach Frank. If you like the show, leave us a review, share it with a friend. That's how people find the podcast. Subscribe on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you listen. And for the accountants out there, listen on Earmark. Get some CPE. It's a great deal. It is. There's no sandwiches involved, but none. CPE. I've, I'm already I'm already 25 percent of the way through of my CPE for the next two years. Oh, great! Thanks to Earmark CPE. Hey, it's easy an, and a, enjoyable. It's a, a fine endorsement. Uh, it's so good. Join us next time for more average swindlers and scams from stories that will make you say, oh, oh my, my fraud. fraud.